Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday 29th of November 2020. Stephen Kurt speaking on A Fresh Take on Jonah. Well, I wonder how much you like comedy. Very few people don't like things that make them laugh, do they? Although, of course, when it comes to taste in comedy, people are very different. So some people love slapstick humour, while others find it really annoying. Some people enjoy farce, while others regard it as over-the-top and rather stupid. And then there are those who like stand-up comedy, while others like situation comedies. Those who like their humour to be light and gentle, while others enjoy it most when it's bouncing off quite dark and even disturbing themes. Some people like bawdy humour, while for others it's witty dialogue that does it for them. For me personally, it's only Fools and Horses, John Sullivan's sitcom about Dell and Rodney Trotter as market traders in Peckham, that is comedy at its absolute finest. But of course, the very point I'm making is that those of you listening to this talk will all have your own very different choices when it comes to what makes you laugh. Despite the fact that humour has always been around, it's only relatively recently that people have woken up to how vital it is, not only for our health, but our spiritual well-being as well. In fact, the sociologist Peter Berger identified humour as one of the seven signs of transcendence, suggesting that it's the people who laugh the most that we tend to see as most alive. Now, as someone who was once told as a curate here at Christchurch that I'd only be seen as a credible vicar if I did something about my laugh, I'm perhaps not best placed to comment on this. But the truth is that humour, like everything else in creation, is a precious gift from God. One that, like all of God's gifts, can all too easily be abused and become distorted, but a precious and valuable gift nonetheless. Even in our toughest moments, and I've had a particularly tough week and a half, humour has a powerful way of lifting us to a different place. But what about the Bible? Is humour found there? Jokes can be made using the Bible, of course, but that's rather different. Does the Bible contain things that are deliberately intended to be funny? The answer is a definite yes. But with some of this humour less than apparent, partly because of years of people not thinking the Bible should be read that way, and partly because of our differences to the cultural settings in which the Bible was written, which can make us miss the norms being turned upside down by it. But within the teaching of Jesus, for instance, we see plenty of examples of the absurd being used to make a point. A rich man entering the kingdom of God being like a camel going through the eye of a needle is one of them. So is God being compared to a grumpy neighbour in the parable of the friend at midnight? Or a dishonest manager being given as an example of faith in another of Jesus' parables? Another example is the appearance of a number of, number of disreputable women in the otherwise respectable and all-male genealogy of Jesus that begins the New Testament. Humour often works by leading us down one path where we would expect things to happen that get suddenly overthrown. And that's why comedy is often the best way of making very serious points. It's not just good for our health and peace of mind, in other words. Humour is often good for our thinking as well. Because skillfully and creatively used, it can lull us 
into recognising things that we would otherwise miss. What I want to suggest this Sunday is that the book of Jonah in the Bible is given to us as a comedy. As a comedy that works in the message that it's seeking to deliver precisely because, like all good comedies, it uses the extreme and the absurd to confront us with the challenge that it's seeking to make. Years of being familiar with the story of Jonah might mean that it's hard for us to see this. And so let's attempt to read this story again today with an eye for the humour within it that helps it to deliver its really important message. And the key to recognising the comedy in the book of Jonah is that right from the start we see everyone in this book doing the complete opposite of what we would expect them to. So the book starts rather solemnly with the statement that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, telling him to preach against the pagan city of Nineveh because its wickedness had come before God. So far, so predictable, with the start of this book similar to that of the 17 other prophetic books contained in the Old Testament. We've even heard of Jonah, son of Amittai, before, in a brief reference in 2 Kings 14 verse 25, where he delivers the sort of message expected of God's prophets. The start of the book of Jonah appears to be consistent with this, as he's given another message to deliver. But what does God's prophet then do in the very next verse? He runs away. Other prophets get scared like Isaiah or depressed like Elijah and Jeremiah, but they never run away. For the moment, the reason that Jonah has run away isn't disclosed, and perhaps in the comedy of this scenario, its readers are yet to ask that question. But to make it even funnier, we hear that Jonah is seeking to run away from God. Given that within a few verses, Jonah is saying that he believes that God made the sea and the land, this too is hilarious, the idea that someone can run away from God, as is the fact that God's prophet is very soon fast asleep on the ship that he boards, while all around him a violent storm is threatening to engulf that ship, and the pagans on board are the ones desperately trying to save it. What on earth is going on? The original listeners of this story would have thought as they laughed at the topsy-turvy nature of it all. And then, as in all good comedy, it starts to become a bit more subversive, a bit more edgy. It's one thing to see God's prophet acting unusually, but suddenly we see these rough, tough, pagan sailors on the ship behaving totally differently from the way we'd expect them to as well. Because as well as trying to save the ship, they're all crying out to their various gods to help them. And when he realises that Jonah isn't with them, it's their sea-hardened captain who wakes up the sleeping prophet and gets him to pray to his god. So we have a pagan exhorting a prophet to pray to the covenant god of Israel. The humour continues as these rough, tough pagans are utterly reluctant to follow Jonah's instruction to throw him overboard. And when they eventually agree to do this, the piety that they show towards the God of Israel and the reverence with which they worship him after he calms the storm all forms the total opposite of what the hearers of this book would have expected. And perhaps by now, the seriousness within this comedy is starting to make its impact upon those hearers. Make them laugh, make them cry, make them think. 
That's what the teacher who directed the musicals that I did as a teenager at school would tell us. And perhaps by now, the Israelite listeners were starting to realise that this story was deconstructing their assumptions about who could belong to God. But before they have too long to think about that, another moment of high comedy occurs as God provides a great fish to swallow Jonah. And the prophet is then inside the fish for three days and three nights. That's the bit of the story of Jonah that's most famous, isn't it? And the reason why this very untypical prophet in the Old Testament is perhaps the most famous of all. We'll come back to the big fish later, and also to the prayer that Jonah says while he's in it. But after three days, we get another comic moment as God issues a command to the fish, which unlike God's prophet obeys it, to vomit Jonah onto dry land. Yes, God's prophet has been puked up. The word of the Lord then comes to Jonah a second time, telling him to go to Nineveh and proclaim God's message. And this time Jonah, following the fish's example, obeys what God says. And when we get to Nineveh, we immediately get yet more comedy. Jonah preaches 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's all he says. In Hebrew, that's a five-word sermon with no mention at all of what the Ninevites have done wrong, or how they should respond, or even who it was that would overturn them. God doesn't get mentioned by Jonah, and the nature of the message almost suggests that he's trying to ensure their destruction. But the response, however, to this minimalistic sermon is then completely astonishing. With the Ninevites, rather like the pagan sailors earlier in the book, believing God and then fasting, and repenting, and showing all of this by wearing sackcloth. They are overturned, in other words, but in a very different way to that envisaged by Jonah. News of the message reaches the king himself, and he, astonishingly, does exactly the same as his subjects, and he issues a decree that, rather comically, even the animals in Nineveh should fast and wear sackcloth to express the city's repentance and desire for God's compassion. And suddenly more serious, the response of God to all of this is to have that compassion and to not bring on the city the destruction he had threatened. And it's then that the greatest comedy moment in the story occurs in Jonah's response. Jonah prays to God in the form of a rant that finally reveals why he ran away in the first place, namely that he knew all along that God was a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And he basically hadn't wanted the pagan Ninevites to receive this forgiveness. The shocking and very sobering moment of the book is where, relaxed by the comedy within it, we're confronted with the utterly serious thought that someone who's meant to speak on behalf of God can at the same time be completely and utterly opposed to people receiving his love. And it's shocking because the listeners would have realised that it's such a pointed rebuke to the people of Israel for not recognising what their covenant God was like and how their attitude towards the surrounding pagan peoples was nothing like God's. 
That phrase about God being compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, it's a familiar one throughout the Old Testament. Speaking powerfully of the nature of Israel's God, it occurs with a few variations numerous times. And yet the book of Jonah is showing how in their attitude towards the people around them, Israel was showing that she hadn't begun to grasp what her covenant God was really like. It is an utterly serious point, even if the writer can't resist using a further bit of humour to reinforce it. Furious at God's grace to the people of Nineveh, Jonah is sheltered by a vine that God provides to give him shade. But then, again rather comically, God sends a worm to eat the vine, which makes Jonah really angry once again, only for God to then compare Jonah's concern for the temporary vine with his concern for the 120,000 lost people in the city of Nineveh. Oh yes, and their cows as well. So what about those two bits of the story that I said I'd come back to? The big fish and the prayer that Jonah says. The big fish, or the whale, as uh, it's often referred to, is of course the bit of the story that most people remember. And it's led to furious debates between fundamentalist Christians insisting that it could have happened and did happen, and their opponents who insist that this couldn't be possible. Could there really be a fish or a whale that was large enough to swallow someone who could then survive within that fish for three days? To my mind, such debates are really an exercise in missing the point. Although not completely, since the size of the fish does sort of prompt the major point of the story. Caught wondering whether a fish could ever be large enough to swallow a man whole like this, we're really being asked by the story of Jonah whether we can believe that God's love, that God's grace is large enough to encompass everyone in the world, all the people that God has made. In short, it's the bigness of God's love, not the bigness of the fish, that the book of Jonah is encouraging us to recognise and then live by. But what about the prayer or the psalm that Jonah utters when he is inside the fish? My own belief is that this was a psalm that already existed before the rest of the book of Jonah was composed and was regularly used to express Israel's faith in the God who had appeared to abandon them, but whose salvation according to the psalm is still guaranteed. By being placed at the centre of this comic tale, however, it's being completely recast. Israel, it's proclaiming, God's people have had to be thrown back into the waters of chaos so that they can recognise that by clinging to worthless idols, they are forfeiting the grace that could be theirs. The whole point of Israel being chosen by God was to be a light to the Gentiles, and yet by making their status as God's chosen people into an idol, they were not only failing to pass on that grace, but failing to receive it themselves. Placing this psalm, this prayer, in the middle of this comic tale gives its perhaps highly familiar words a much greater sting than they would have had otherwise. And this sting is for us as well. Because the comedy of Jonah is basically intended to hold up a mirror and to ask us to look into that mirror and consider 
whether we might look a bit like Jonah. God, you see, calls all of his people to be prophets to the world, to proclaim his word through their lives and their words. But the question that the story is asking is whether we really want that world around us to receive God's grace. Do we like the fact that our God is a God of compassion, a God who is slow to anger, a God who loves Nineveh-like pagans just as much as his people? Or like Jonah, do we secretly hate any idea of that? Are we in danger of turning our membership of God's people into something exclusive, an idol that we're in danger of worshipping, more than a God whose grace is for everyone? The reason it's so important is because how we understand God, seeing others, drives how we treat them. Believe that God doesn't want to rescue those who don't at present follow him, or people we think aren't good enough to belong to him, and we'll treat them accordingly. See them instead, those annoying colleagues we work with, that unreasonable boss we have, the appallingly behaved next-door neighbour that we possess. See them as precious people in the sight of God and will instead recognise our God-given calling to become a channel of his grace to them and believe that grace really can touch and transform their lives. The book of Jonah, I therefore suggest, uses its comedy and every one of its characters doing the precise opposite of what we might expect to confront us with the challenge of whether the story of the big fish has made us see in a way that we didn't before, the bigness of God's love, and to be prepared to be a channel of that love and grace that he intends for absolutely everyone.